Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. This week, we keep our focus on the United States. You may remember that last week we spoke to the New York Times' Ben Smith about a shell-shocked country dealing with the passing of an unwanted milestone of 200,000 people dead from COVID-19 and a president running roughshod over the news media. This week, as the US presidential election heats up, we discuss the fallout from the first presidential debate. We ask, has the election taken a decisive turning point And is the Trump show coming to an end? Or is it just revving up? And are we seeing on our screens the last throes of American democracy? Joining us today is Damien Cave, the Bureau Chief Australia for the New York Times, and Nick O'Malley, who is the National Environment and Climate Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but also a former US correspondent and an expert on American politics. Damien Cave and Nick O'Malley, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Let's start our discussion with the debate. There had, of course, been a lot of anticipation around this first debate, as it was to be the first time, actually, that Donald Trump and Joe Biden would would clash in person. Before the debate, lots of speculation about what Trump would, wouldn't do. Would Biden let out one of his gaffes? So what we've seen, no gaffes, but Trump dominated the entire debate, showing, as always, total indifference to any form of conventional order. Uh, According to Slate, Trump interrupted Biden or the moderator 128 times in 90 minutes, which is quite extraordinary. In 2016, he interrupted Hillary Clinton just 51 times. So, Damien, can I start with you? Has Trump refined the art of being Donald Trump in the years he's been in the Oval Office? Or was this a very deliberate show by him to highlight the contrast in personality? You know, that's a good question. I I mean, the people who I know who cover Donald Trump very closely um, would say that you're assuming there's a strategy when there may in fact not be. Um, You know, after four years in the White House, spending a lot of time with people who agree with him, um, if anything, he's just become a bigger Donald Trump than he was four years ago, a bigger version of himself, a more exaggerated version of himself. Mm. And so watching him, I didn't feel as though this was, you know, a strategic thing so much as what he went in there, what everyone told him to be, which is himself, which is to be, you know, as domineering as possible. That's how he is in news conferences. And that's that's sort of what it reminded me of times 10. So I, I don't know that there was a strategy so much as a just impulsiveness that has come to define his presidency. Uh, Nick, is that the way you see it as well? Do, do, do you think that he's just an emboldened Donald Trump or, or, or a bigger version of himself? I do. I had the same same thought while watching it. To me, I learned nothing about Donald Trump. He did look and sound the way he did at news conferences when anyone dares to challenge him, which he clearly, after a few years surrounded by yes men, considers to be a, a greater insult than, than he did at the outset. Um, if there was a difference in Donald Trump, you, you couldn't see it over the past by comparing this performance to his public utterances over the past few months. But it did seem to me that um, for whatever reason, he was more engaged in the old-fashioned sense of debate in the last series of debates he did with Hillary Clinton. Not much more, but more. But this was him. In, in, what, in what way, Nick? Look from memory. I haven't. I haven't gone back and rewatched them, but I, I've watched some clips. He did have to. 
engage in to and fro's in that series of debates. And unless he clearly didn't see the need to, in an almost petulant fashion, he simply insisted on interrupting and and countering incoherently anything that was said, anything that was said, not just by uh, Biden, but by the moderator, poor old Chris Wallace. Now, people keep on, some people are analysing that as a victory for him. I, I think it's impossible to judge this debate on those old-fashioned terms of win and loss. If anything, Biden, if he struggled to do that, won by, by not losing it. But I think what stood out to me was just what what America is now facing with a, a leader in the White House who is refusing to commit to a peaceful transition of power and, confuse, and refusing to, to condemn white supremacy. That was my main takeaway, and it was yeah. thoroughly depressing. Yeah, sure. It was depressing, but, um, and we'll come to that. But if, if debates with Trump are just crazy and weird, you know, these circuses, the circus that we saw yesterday, was the real aim for Biden just to get through this with no major gaffes, be the adult in the room, the sane, sober, quietly speaking voice? And if so, do you think that the American public, particularly that portion of the American public disinclined to vote for the Democratic Party, saw it in the same way? Damien? You know, I, I think I mean, I think it put Joe Biden in a really difficult position, because if he was just trying to be the voice of decency and reason, then it basically ends up looking to many like weakness. And so I actually think he went in there knowing that he was going to have to punch back a bit. And I think that was, you know, a strategy that he deployed. So you have him using lines like, I mean, you know, shut up, man, or calling him a clown. I don't know that those were rehearsed lines. They didn't seem like it. But he definitely went in there knowing that he was going to have to punch back as opposed to just being decent. He, I think it was clear that he needed to be more than decent. He needed to be at least as combative enough to stand as an equal to Trump. And I think he, you know, did as well as he could. I, I, what I found striking too was was the way he would sort of smirk and laugh and this like, can you believe this guy ma manner, which mm. um, in some ways was an effort to I mean, it's other people have said this. It's like a schoolyard, you know, set of bullies or set of kids. I mean, it's so juvenile, but it seems to be an effort to say, like, I'm not going to take this guy seriously and neither should you. Um, an effort to kind of bring himself up to Trump's level to bring Trump down to his level, however you want to describe it. But it was clear that he was deploying a whole bunch of different tactics to say, listen, your exertion of pure raw power is not going to work in the same way that it might with others. I'm going to do my best to at least, you know, deploy some counter strategies. And, and do you think that will work uh, on on that portion of the electorate that would be dis, otherwise disinclined to, to, to vote Democrat? It's so hard to know. I mean, there was an interesting... Um, kind of group of, of undecided voters that Frank Luntz, who's this Republican pollster, pulled together afterwards. And a couple of the quotes from there, these were undecided voters, maybe leaning Republican, including someone, a couple of people who had previously voted for Trump. And someone was asked, oh, well, you know, what did you think of, of, of Biden being called, uh, Biden calling him a clown? Was that offensive? He said, well, you know, if the shoe fits, if the clown shoe fits. <laughs> and so, you know, I do think that there is, there is, an acknowledgement that you're not dealing with a normal presidential candidate. And so some of the same norms of how you respect the presidency aren't going to apply. Um, the trickier thing, I think, is how many people are actually going to have seen the debate? The ratings were really low. Yeah. You're going to have people who heard about the debate and they're just going to say, oh, this is just, you know, it was just must have just been Trump being Trump. They're not going to recognize that it was even more severe than it has been in the past. They're just going to think, oh, well, but Joe, you know, was sleepy. I saw somewhere that he was slow to respond. And, and so I'm not sure that it really 
we'll have as much power outside the circle of news junkies as we And, and so what do you think accounts for that decline, though, in ratings? Because it was quite significant, not th- 13 million people, I think. Fewer people watched the debate, this debate, than did the Clinton-Trump debate. Is that because they're saying, look, we know what Trump is, we know that he's the, he's the clown, he's the performer, and, and, and Biden's, you know, Sleepy Joe, and he's a boring kind of candidate, so what's the point? Is that what it's about? A little bit. I mean, I think Americans are so exhausted and fatigued from this. You know, like it makes me think of, I remember when I covered the war in Iraq and there was a point where I was talking to a few people about how when there are wars, one of the reasons, one of the things that end wars is just pure exhaustion. At the end of like four or five years, a lot of wars just come to an end because people are just too tired of fighting. And to some degree, you know, I wonder if this election in the coming years are going to be defined by people actually a large mass of people being so sick of politics and wanting having to nothing to do with it that they actually disengage. And so I think that's what explains the ratings. Um, I think that's going to be something that America is going to have to deal with is a way to find a way to interact and sew the society back together that in a way that it's not through politics. Mm-hmm. But um, but right now, I, I just think that it's it's a case of just exhaustion and frustration and disgust on all sides. And Nick, what do you think? Do you think Biden did enough yesterday? Yeah, Biden did what he needed to do. I agree that, you know, whether those lines were uh, rehearsed or not, I suspect some were. That's what he needed to do. He needed to push back because this is a this now this fight with with Trump is a macho game, and a lot of his character is macho posturing, and a lot of his support adores that. And sadly, anyone who goes up against him has to demonstrate that they are not going to be uh, weakened or intimidated by him, which you know detracts even further from what passes for debate at the top of politics in America. I don't believe anyone learned anything from that. I noticed James Fallows wrote afterwards, uh, the, the Atlantic's commentator and I, I think a member of the, um, uh, the one of the other Australian think tanks, he he said he's not going to watch another debate because there's no point. And I thought that's, that's quite a reasonable response. You're not going to get anything from this. And if you do, it's going to be a gotcha. It's going to be Biden losing his call or Biden getting a name wrong. And mm. in the end, well, that's meaningless. It, it, nothing means anything anymore. In in this in this debate, and I watched also that that um, group of undecided voters that Frank Luntz had heroically pulled together because Luntz is a really interesting Republican pollster. He always draws interesting people together. But my first thought watching that was, how the hell do you find people in that country who are now undecided? Totally. Uh, were they really? <laughs> yeah, and and if they were, well, then do we really need to hear from them? Because if you're undecided in the United States of America at the moment, then you're not a particularly engaged citizen, I would have thought. This is not to demean them. It's just that America is not only polarised, it's polarised between uh, a party that has become uh, welded to this, this man which is not reflective of its history uh, and another party which is struggling to respond to that, but it's all about Trump. Mm. So another point that that is interesting in this debate was the moder- the role of the moderator, Chris Wallace, who, who had, I mean, talk about an un- unenviable job. Um, he, he, he at times looked like he'd lost control of the debate. I, I would have thought that actually he didn't really lose control of the debate, that it's impossible to control Trump in his current mind state how do you rate how do you guys rate his performance Damien you know I actually thought he did a a decent job I thought you know when he stopped halfway through and and tried to make that appeal 
Um, I thought that was, you know, a, a pretty savvy move in a debate where there are no breaks and there's no one saying, hey, this is getting out of control. And, you know, we had an interview with him today where, you know, he acknowledged I had no idea it was going to go down this path and I wish I had done more sooner. And so he was pretty thoughtful and contemplative about it. I thought some of the questions that he asked Trump were actually really sharp and I think were surprising for those who think that Fox News is only, you know, Hannity. Yeah. Um, question that question about white supremacy, which was really telling, you know, is not something that Trump clearly expected. And and so I, I actually think overall he did as good a job as he could have in the first debate of what, you know, was wildly non-normative to say the least. Yeah. And now the Presidential Debate Commission is considering uh, changing the rules for the third debate. The second debate, I think, is a town hall number where the audience gets to ask the questions. Um, but in the third debate, it's back to this, the, the format of yesterday. If they do change the rules, muting Trump, I think, is one of the possibilities. And the other is penalising him in the open discussion timing so that he gets less time on the next question. Will that even work? That doesn't sound to me like it could even work. Nick, what do you think? Look, I can't see why it would work. I mean, the only thing that will work is Donald Trump choosing to curb his behaviour. I think the fact that the next debate is a town hall means that the entire show will be different. It'll be more difficult for him to shout down uh, actual voters rather than someone in the media. He's spent four years castigating the media, even though Chris Wallace is from a friendly news organisation. Mm. Um, and I agree. I think Chris Wallace is one of the best political interviewers in America, TV political interviewers, and he, he did as good a job as he could. Mm. Um, in the long run, I mean, should you be should you be muting a president? I don't know. Um, I guess but, it depends on the president, right? I suppose so. But do voters learn something when a president speaks over their, their interviewers? Mm. Um, it just struck me as we were talking, though, that we've got to remember, was it the second debate last time around that Trump tried to derail before it even began by bringing along people who had accused Bill Clinton of uh, of sexual assault or improprieties? Mm. We've got to remember that this guy will do anything he can to attract attention to himself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is it's about spectacle to some degree. And so, you know, the, the challenge with Trump is if you mute him or if you punish him with time, it just feeds into his sense of grievance, which is what he runs on anyways and what fuels his campaign. So, yeah. you know, it, it's it's a really and then and then even if you mute, mute him, Joe Biden can still hear him and he's going to be distracted. But then you're not going to have heard what Trump said and what you're going to hear what Biden responds to. Like It just it it doesn't. I don't know. It's really tricky. I mean, I was wondering if part of this in his effort to create a spectacle is not an effort to kind of blow up the rest of the debates. Like, I'm not sure Trump really likes debates where he has to be questioned in such a difficult manner um, mm. or he's not in control. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you see in the coming weeks the Trump campaign just saying, you know what, we don't want to do this. We're going to just talk to the American people at our rallies and we're not going to subject ourselves to this. So we'll mm. see. Well, which brings me to my next point, because it has been said before that only media elites worry about the debates and in reality the debates don't really you know mean much in terms of u.s presidential elections damien is that is that true uh it's hard to tell i mean you know the, there's sort of um i think that views kind of change over time and there's there's sort of like a long tail for debates in, in the sense that you know like even i was reading a piece about how even some of the things that that trump said last time there was this assumption that it didn't have any impact but then if you look sort of over time there is sort of a slow accretion of shifting opinions um we'll see what the polling says after this one 
I, I do think that um, I wouldn't say that they are, have no influence, nor do I think that they are as influential as you might surmise looking at the headlines on any major news organization, including ours. So I don't think, I think a lot of people, you know, like I said, they'll, they'll read snippets and hear snippets of the debate and it will shape their views a little bit, but I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of minds changed. Right. And Nick, you know, would it be, what do you think? Do you think that Trump was just talking exclusively to his base? Um, Well, I agree that he didn't really have a strategy. He he operates on gut instinct rather than strategy, and his gut instinct is dominance and showing off. Uh, It was interesting that his own camp said before the debate that he wasn't he wasn't spending a lot of time directly on preparation. Instead, he was seeking to leverage his experience, which means he'd done no preparation and his minders couldn't corral him into doing preparation. And instead, he was going to, to do what he always does, which is what he did. What I found interesting looking at media in the hours afterwards, uh, you know, it was great. there's some interesting, very interesting analysis across considered US media. But if you look at what was trending on Facebook, uh, of the top 10 uh, most shared political elements that I saw, I think eight, eight out of 10 of them were diehard Trump-based um, organisations or individuals. And if you look at the memes that were being shared on Twitter, it was all, you know, I saw one person or, or one particular meme being shared an awful lot, which was Trump looking like a tough guy and it was, you know, that's and, and the slogan on it was, that's my badass president. So... I don't think it matters to his base, or if anything, I think they probably enjoyed the spectacle. Right. Uh, and then we go back to you know how many normally in a in a, in a at the end of a race there's three to five percent of persuadables, and I I can't imagine that there's even that many on this occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, let's talk briefly then about the the uh, the New York Times scoop on Trump's tax returns. Do you think the revelation um, that Trump winning the ultra successful you know billionaire, but he's in reality a largely washed up dodgy millionaire, enough to to move the needle in this election? Damien? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously an, an amazing feat of reporting um, on a question that people have been asking for a very long time. I don't know that it tells anyone, you know, anything completely new. The idea that Trump is either a wheeler dealer, if you like him, or a con man and a cheat, if you don't, is kind of already out there. But the things that I thought were interesting um, and potentially damaging over time is that he it does have a lot of this debt that he's dealing with and that um, there's there are just hints of, of, of just outright corruption that he's benefiting you know from his position that he's funneling money to his kids that you know shouldn't be funneled to his kids uh, you know that stuff is a little bit newer I think in terms of having numbers and, and some clear definition. So over time, I do wonder if that's going to have more of an impact. Um, than and do you think do you think that that corrupt aspect, as opposed to the he only pays you know seven hundred and fifty dollars a year in taxation, you think that will cut through more? I kind of I I don't know I don't I mean I don't know if it'll cut through more, but um, I mean I think you know when looking at the conversation afterwards, like seven hundred and fifty was a number that that just seems to stick in people's minds quite a bit. It was um, extraordinary. Yeah, and so I think that that actually will 
have an influence, at least in, in some people's minds, and a degree of frustration. I mean, the irony of someone who is running a government that he hasn't contributed to besides a few hundred dollars or less than he probably spends on a couple of haircuts is pretty stunning. And, and I do think it's the kind of thing that a lot of Americans, especially in, you know, a suburb where there's mixed views and, and you know, it's not nearly as kind of white and conservative as Trump thinks it is. I think people who are hardworking and trying to put their, you know, kids through school are going to think about that. Yeah. Nick, what do you think? Do you think it'll cut through? I don't know that it'll cut through in the political uh, race. And I don't know, well, I don't think that's its purpose either. Its purpose is, as pure journalism, it was an incredible, as uh, as you just said, it was a feat. And it was beautifully told and it was beautifully displayed as well for journalism nerds. Um, I, another figure that stood out to me was that apart from 750 in taxes, he blew $70,000 on haircuts. Mm. Uh, which he then, which he then had the cheek to go and claim. What I think it does is it tells us not, more not to of, mention being ripped off. <laughs> exactly, but um, it tells us a lot about who that man is and about his behaviour over fifteen years, and that is an incredibly valuable contribution. I don't think, and I, I suppose I'm sounding a bit boring. I'm just repeating myself. I don't think it changes votes at this stage. I don't right. because it doesn't tell us much about him, about his character anyway. It just it fills in the the broader portrait of who this man is, which is an important thing for us all to know in the long run. Even when you even when you you, you pit that figure up of what he's paid in tax against what Biden paid in twenty nineteen, which was three hundred thousand k. Well, then I think his supporters would say, "Well, Trump's a genius for not getting caught up paying tax." Yeah. Well, and, say, and, and I think they would say, "God, the American tax system is what a disaster." You know, like I had a friend who shared something online that was like. This is the American tax system, and it was a Lamborghini driving under, you know, a gate from a mall. That basically, if you're rich, you get away with all kinds of stuff, and that's and that's I think what a lot of Americans take away from this is that the system is broken, which they already knew. Right. Okay. So, so okay, then let, let's let's talk policy. Then you know, put the crazy to one side. There seems to be a clear choice in policy terms for American voters. The Democrats' program is by conventional standards at least, it appears progressive, ambitious, detailed. The Republicans, on the other hand, have strangely offered no coherent plan, nothing except presumably more of the same for the next four years. Does the American media, Damien, do you think, even have time, not to mention the energy, to examine policy in the way it should when, there are fl- when they're basically flat out covering the next outrageous thing that Trump says or does? You know, I, I guess I, I think that there it's not a question of sort of is there time. I kind of feel like the policy differences are already so clear and so well known um, and the alternatives are so sharp that that there's there's you know, I would much rather have the coverage be focusing where I think it is focusing now on the threats to democracy and whether or not this system can withstand an assault from a president who doesn't believe that, you know, the democratic system is worth respecting if he loses. So, um, you know, the policy of how American democracy functions is, is, has taken on much greater significance. It's been broken for a very long time, I would argue, but that to me is, is a better place to be focusing attention than whether or not, to me, whether or not the the green new deal is 30% more radical than Biden's plan or et cetera. I mean, I think that, you know, the Democrats are getting away with the fact that they don't, they're not getting a whole lot of scrutiny on their policy. And so to that point, I think you're right that there there should be more just explaining and laying it out for people. 
But I just don't know that anyone, you know, is really thinking so sharply about policy in this moment. And I'm actually not so sure that that they need to be, frankly. They need to figure out a way to make sure that the system functions and their votes are counted. So, Nick, do, do you think, would you agree with that, that there are meta issues that require more scrutiny from American news media than, uh, than the minutiae of policy detail? Well, at the moment, you have a president who's saying he might not respect the outcome of an election in 30 days. So going into policy differences does seem a little bit off pace. Um, the other thing is that the Demo- you, you could say, you could easily mount the argument that democratic policies are, they're not more radical, they're, they are more progressive than they have been in the past. But by comparison to what the GOP is offering America and the world, so what? You know? and, it, and also in the long run, given the general shift to the right for over a generation, they're not that radical in the in the broader context. They are perhaps more progressive than Hillary Clinton's, who's were perhaps more progressive in some areas mm. uh, than Barack Obama's. Mm. Damien, do you think um, do you think that American journalism has found it more challenging to cover Trump than they anticipated? That he's confounded journalism more than could have been anticipated. I do think that's the case. I mean, you know, even you think of Chris Wallace in the debate, like even when you think you've become acclimated to the way that he breaks through, you know, norms, you have to revisit that once again. Every interaction is potentially completely new and toxic and different than it was before. So I do think the media's had a really hard time figuring out how to deal with them. And, um, and, and you know, whether it's headlines or coverage, I do think the media's gotten a lot better added over time. And I think there's evidence that readers feel the same way. Mm. Um, but it is, you know, it's a process. And, and you know, and, and we'll see. I mean, the big challenge, and I know that at the New York Times and elsewhere, they're having lots of conversations about this, is what do you do on election day and afterwards when those norms of, okay, calling who won or lost are also cle- completely destroyed? Um, and when you're dealing with all kinds of allegations and accusations at very local levels that are very difficult to determine what's rumor and what's fact, like it's going to get really messy after November 3rd. And so that's, we'll see how well the media does in that, in that maelstrom. Mm. Um, in, in this election also, there is potentially a lot more at stake, I think, than, than, than most voters might be willing to accept. I mean, in conventional terms, at least, if Trump wins by a whisker in November, he is a deeply unpopular president seeing out another four years but marches and protests aside, if they occur, could it also be a really dangerous moment for American democracy when it's essentially, when you could say that it essentially gave up on itself? Damien, do we have anything to really worry about in, in relation to American democracy? Or is American democracy, do you think, at the end of the day, robust enough to withstand another four years of Donald Trump? Good question. I mean, American democracy is more robust and has dealt with more extremes than a lot of people remember. (laughs) You know, it's a country that was forged in revolution, that has dealt with civil war, that has dealt with civil rights, that has dealt with Vietnam protests, Watergate. I mean, it's a country of extremes in every way. Um, And the system miraculously does seem to bend more than it breaks. And so, you know, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where I mean, Trump is not a young man. At some point, he will be gone. And at some point, the United States will continue. Will it continue in anything like what it was five or 10 or 15 years ago? Maybe not. Um, But I I do think that the system 
has remarkable resilience. And in fact, you know, it's also quite possible that 10 or 20 years from now, you're gonna look back and say, this was the moment when American democracy realized it needed to change and reform itself um, at the really deep structural level. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I think the country is, is, is bigger and more dynamic. I often have to remind people, don't forget America is not just politics. It's also Beyonce. It's also a whole bunch of other things that, you know, are very powerful in their own right. So you're hopeful. I, I am hopeful over the long term. I'm extremely concerned in the, in the short to middle term, <laughs> to be honest. Right. I'm really worried that that this challenging of, of election legitimacy is going to have really deep consequences for a long time. I, I was talking to someone who studies power, and she was saying, you know, that once you start just using raw power, and that's the only means that is respected or dealt with, and that's what Donald Trump represents, then it just continues. It's a cycle that's really, really difficult to get out of. I mean, regardless, though, the liberal order is taking a shellacking. I mean, the number, not just in America, I mean, the number of democracies around the globe is shrinking. And, and this week, uh, yesterday, we have a president of the United States more or less winking at neo-fascists on national television. No president before Trump would have been seen within a thousand miles of an outfit like the Proud Boys. And, uh, you know, today people just shrug their shoulders when Trump, you know, not just fails to call them out, but offers words of encouragement. Nick, what the hell has happened to the liberal order and how do we end up here? I think it's been a generational shift. I don't think that Trump is the cause of this. And I know other people have said it. I think he's the symptom. But, you know, I look back at Newt Gingrich coming into Congress however many years ago, a generation ago, and then achieving power and instructing young Congress people to treat their opposition, their opponents as animals and to describe them. He put out sheets saying these are the words you should describe Democrats. They should be described as inhuman or subhuman. And I, I think it's been exacerbated year in, year out by that, by both sides of politics, but in my view, mainly by one side, more, more by Republicans. Uh, and it's had a very dramatic effect on American civil life, but also its practical life. When I was in the United States reporting, I remember for the first time surveys coming out showing that life expectancy was shrinking. You know, and you see that basic institutions are withering because they're not getting enough, not just funding, and they weren't getting that, but they, they weren't getting enough uh, respect and support from the, the political system. On the other hand, and I think this will continue, if, even if Trump loses in, 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 in vast numbers in a few days, in a couple of weeks, I think that still there is going to be a very significant part of American politics which is now emboldened and enlivened by his sort of rhetoric and behaviour, and it will take a long time for that to recede if it does. On the other hand, I do think that there are very strong institutions uh, which which will act in concert to defend the the order such as it is. I don't think, for example, that no matter how, how great the uh, conservative majority is on the Supreme Court, that it will simply kowtow to a Republican movement demanding that it, it gives them an election. The Supreme Court, no matter who's on it, will defend the court and defend the order of the United States. So... There are still strong institutions. I think media will have to act uh, in concert with them to defend those bits of it that are still resilient. So uh, that brings us actually to the next point that I wanted to raise, and that is that Trump has been threatening to not accept the election result if it's not a clear victory to him, perhaps not explicitly saying that but alluding to it. Uh, this obviously is setting off alarm bells. 
but he is a professional troll. You know, is is the talk of not accepting the result just more Trump blustered, Damien, that will quickly fade, or is it way more sinister this time? I don't know. I'm not sure his bluster fades so much. He usually does try to follow through on whatever it is that he's said and continue it. So I, I think you have to take it quite seriously. And we already have evidence that what he's been saying and doing is disenfranchising people as we speak. Mm-hmm. It's also inviting interference from Russia and others to sort of create the perception of greater chaos to delegitimize it even further. So I, I think you have to take this one pretty seriously. Um, I do think, though, like Nick said, that there are institutions that, you know, have shown the power to withstand the Trump assault. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that the IRS still hasn't figured out how to negotiate his tax payments that he still owes, um, and they haven't bent to his will. Um, you know, you do still have the FBI and the CDC saying things that are out of line with what Trump wants them to say. The Supreme Court, you know, Chief Justice Roberts knows that his reputation is on the line and he will do what he needs to do to protect himself, if nothing else. So while these threats, I think, are very important and very serious, I do think, you know, they could also create, you know, a surge of of people voting um, that make it a landslide in which Trump loses. And then suddenly the whole conversation changes. So so I don't know. I think you have to take it seriously, but I don't necessarily think it's destiny. Right. Nick, what do you think? How how worried should we be about these um, these threats from Trump? The threats are the action. Um, so it is serious. It's already serious. He's already sowing chaos. To For the president from, from his pulpit to be saying he might not accept the results of an election, that is the action. That's not just a threat. That is the act of, of instilling chaos and fear in, in a political system. So they should be taken very seriously. But that is not to say that uh, he'll necessarily get away with this. Uh, obviously, and, and again, I'm not the first to say this, but obviously the most difficult period that America faces is is in the days after a close election or a contested election. Mm. Uh, and that could, could pan out very miserably. Um, but, yeah, it, it ain't over. No, no. And, and Damien, I mean, how much faith would you trust in, in the Supreme Court, particularly if Trump's uh, nomination gets up in the next couple of weeks, uh, to resolve a very, very close race? Well, I mean, you know, they'll resolve it according to the law. They're not going to pick a winner. Um, you know, it got tricky in 2000. Obviously, we've seen this in Supreme Court play roles in elections before. But, you know, it's there's so many different possible scenarios. I mean, are they if, if there's, you know, one state that defines it or is the decision, is the election going to be decided on some narrow law within some really small jurisdiction in Ohio? Or is it going to be multiple jurisdictions and different laws? You know, I mean, I, I there's also a provision that says that it would go to Congress. And there, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm far less faith in Congress, as do most Americans um, at this point. So, you know, it's, it's just so, so, so hard to tell. Mm. I, I do wonder, though, I mean, I was just thinking of what you were saying about the liberal order. And living in Australia, one of the things that I've been struck by is how competence can be compelling. And so, you know, when you see countries like New Zealand and Australia, you know, beat back the coronavirus in a way that the United States doesn't, and see trust surge as a result of that, you know, there are also scenarios in which, you know, what seems completely dark and in the abyss of America with a a turnaround of competence through this election, you know, could also be the beginning of something different too. So, I'm trying to be hopeful through this, and I think it's worth remembering that that's possible. Opinions and trust in government can change very quickly. I love your optimism, Damien. It's fantastic. And so the final question, 
to you both, if Trump wins another four years after all the crises, the controversies, you know, the attacks on his country's institutions, 200,000, you know, people dead from COVID-19, would that not be a moment of existential crisis for the media? Not just what does it do now, but has it shown itself to be largely impotent? Because it's uncovered and documented time and time again, Trump's malfeasances. And if he's re-elected, you know, what does that point to? What does that say about the media? Damien, can you go first? You know, I mean, I think we've seen for a while that when we talk about the media, we think of it as this monolith that we all kind of listen to and participate in. But the reality is there are so many different medias. And as Nick was saying on Facebook, you know, there are a whole lot of people who find media in other ways, and this will simply confirm what their media has told them. And so um, I think it's important to sort of think of the media as a population of information as opposed to a single monolith. And so um, I don't know, but that that said, I, I, I think in some ways, it, I don't know that it does speak to the weakness of media so much as the weakness of a society that's become divided and broken. I think sometimes we put too much faith in the power of the media anyways. Uh, the reality is that, you know, there's only so much we can do. Readers have responsibility as well. And whether they read us or read something else, it's ultimately on on their heads as opposed to ours. Mm. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I don't think media can take credit or blame entirely for any large shift in the way a culture or society works. Uh, and I think we have a tendency to try and do that mainstream media, to use that terrible term now, has always or has recently, I think, in the past decade or so, perhaps misunderstood um, how its fracturing has detracted from its power, what power it did have. So much information is now gathered, shared and understood online that what happens in the Sydney Morning Herald or in the New York Times is not necessarily what people are understanding or appreciating. Uh, and it should also be remembered, I think, as Damien was just saying, that it is not necessarily the media's job to be shaping society rather than reflecting it. And if society is being torn apart at the seams, if if a dump truck has turned up in the middle of the civic square, that's not a result of the media. It is a result of many different fissures and fractures, which the media is useful for trying to understand mm. rather than for, for shaping, I believe. Well, okay, let's take let's take that a little bit further. So, if the media's role then is to explain and to uh, you know to open up forums for discussion, that if he wins, does that not indicate that that tactic, that strategy, hasn't worked? No, it means I suppose that it's overwhelmed by all the other currents and undercurrents in in society because it is not it is not the job of the New York Times to be trying to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, it is not the purpose of revealing his tax returns over the past 15 years to try and beat him at an election, but to reveal his tax returns and present that information to the United States and to the world. They've done their job and they did it really well. Uh, so it says, it suggests, I would think, that society is in a great deal of trouble, but that doesn't automatically suggest a failing of media. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you both for a fascinating and fabulous discussion. I think we should reconvene after the election, definitive result or not. But thank you both very, very much for being with us today. Thank you. On that note, I'd like to thank Damien Cave and Nick O'Malley for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks also for listening to the Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. 
You can subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to the producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.